0: Welcome to episode four of So Hot Right Now. I'm Tom Mustill,
1: And I'm Lucy Siegel. Today, we're going to have a big conversation. Oh, yes. Yes, we are. Now, you might remember in our first episode when we spoke to Sir David Attenborough, SDA, as we call him, emphasised how climate (laughs) change had been swept off the front pages by coronavirus, understandably. And he said we had to get it back on there. But for a long time, that story was missing altogether.
0: No one was talking about climate and the destruction of the natural world. When we talk about media, we often talk now about what a rocky point it's at today, with the rise of social media, Facebook, fake news, and the undermining of newspapers as their funding collapses. The loss of longer investigative reporting and local news. But the truth is that reporting on nature and climate has been a struggle for decades, There have been recent signs of improvement, but today we're going to talk about how and why it's been so difficult to report on nature and climate for so long. And really, this comes down to power. Welcome to True Spies.
1: The story behind this story is one of censorship, false balance, political interference, indifference and hostility. And that's before it even got to the audience, if it got to the audience. Boo. Not many laughs today, folks. (laughs) This week's guest, George Monbiot, has navigated all of it. He's He's actually very funny as well, though, isn't he? I mean, he's entertaining.
0: Yeah, it's not, all, it's not doom, guys. There's some like some gripping yarns ahead.
1: There really are. George is best known as the Guardian's star environmental columnist and for his fearless, uncompromising commitment to social and environmental justice, and as the author of books such as Heat and Feral. But he started out as an investigative environmental reporter making films for the BBC.
0: He's also a big part of the reason why we started making So Hot Right Now. Um, When Lucy and I first met, it was to complain. We were so frustrated with how difficult it was to get stories of nature and climate into our respective jobs, um, telly and journalism. Um, To us, the destruction of the natural world and the climate and the stories of people trying to save them are the greatest and most vital stories of our lives and the most important stories for the public to know about. But our gatekeepers did not seem to share our enthusiasm, and these stories were not getting told.
1: And we should point out, this was before the sort of big Greta Thunberg moment, the March, the youth, uh, Fridays for the Future. And it was before that moment when things felt like they began to shift.
0: Which was crazy, right? Like, I don't know about you, but I, I I sort of never kind of thought that would happen. And I was just waiting for it to sort of go away and people to stop talking about it.
1: Well, you know why you didn't think it was going to happen? Because we were always told that people weren't interested.
0: That's it, right? Yeah. And I guess, like, if I was always wondering, like, if, if you just say that people aren't interested, in you, we won't tell them, then you never, it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Yeah, well, I don't think anyone ever asked them. Anyway, I, I was certainly carrying an amount of baggage, let's put it that way. I knew that my industry had messed up, but I hadn't realised how messed up my industry was. Oh, <laughs> It's very dramatic.
0: Yeah, it is dramatic.
1: Anyway, we got involved in a debate at the Frontline Club about the media's coverage of climate and nature. George was also one of the speakers
0: and some of the stuff he said was like a shot of adrenaline and it made us think about our jobs and our industry in a totally new way.
1: And we wanted more, so we gave him a call.
0: Yeah, it's great to see you, George. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, have we told you very much about what this show's about? Um, not a great deal, no. Well, it came out of that event at the Frontline where yeah. we all met up and talked about uh, communicating climate and Lucy and I before then uh, had met up in, in sort of in frustration to, to vent about how hard it was to get stories about nature and climate uh, on TV especially and then that event happened and the climate marches happened and it really felt like things were changing yes, um, yes. but I remember that th- you said a thing then that really startled me which was I think it was along these lines that the media might be more to blame for the situation we're in with nature and climate than the oil and gas industries
2: Yes. I mean, I think if if I were asked which industry carries the most blame for our failure to get to grips with climate breakdown, it would be the media. Um, I would say that without any hesitation. And the reason for that is that the media grants a social license to all the other destructive um, corporations and industries to carry on doing what they're doing. It does so passively by failing to expose what's happening and to bring this issue to the front and centre of people's minds where it ought to be. But it also does so actively, particularly the billionaire press, Rupert Murdoch's outfits, um, the other newspapers and television channels owned by billionaires who go out of their way to promote climate denial, to put forward people who say there's nothing to worry about or if there is something to worry about, don't worry because technology will sort it out or we don't need to do very much, we'll just do a little bit and we'll be fine. Um, And all of that massively impedes action and makes political organising much harder because you're then constantly struggling against a tide of indifference and denial and dismissal. Uh, a, a while ago on social media, I, I put out the question, is there anyone more dangerous than Rupert Murdoch on Earth? And, and the reason for that was that at the height of the Australian fires, um, he had, um, at the front page of his newspaper, The Australian, uh, was consisted of two stories, one celebrating Australia's rising coal exports, and the other yeah. attacking the fire chiefs for saying this is climate breakdown, this is real, and we ought to be making contingencies for it.
1: And in, in terms of uh, what's happened, is, are you able to kind of describe how long has this scenario been going on for? And it's probably an impossible question, but how do you quantify the suppression uh, and the overpromotion of climate denial? Like what, what has been the impact in real terms, do you think?
2: Well, I've been working in this field for 35 years now. And when I began in 1985, I felt quite optimistic. I mean, partly because I was very young and naive um, and slightly arrogant. And I thought, all you need to do is to tell people what the problems are. And inevitably, those problems will be solved. That's just how it works. And I didn't really understand the nature of power. um, And I didn't understand just how dirty and nasty some interests are and the extent to which the dirtiest industries will fight by any and every means to sustain their own survival. And over these 35 years, I've become gradually more aware of just how powerful those forces are and how prepared governments are to to do what they want. For me, a big turning point came in 1987 when Mrs. Thatcher launched her coup against the BBC, where I was working at the time as an investigative environmental journalist. There they used to be such things. Um, and uh, my boss came in the day after the director general was forced to resign and said, that's it, no more investigative journalism. I said, what do you mean? I mean, you can't have journalism without investigation. That is journalism. There isn't such a thing as journalism without investigative journalism. And he said, sorry, but we've had it from the top, right across the BBC, no more investigative journalism till this blows over. Well, it never really blew over. um, And there are little scraps of investigative journalism at the BBC, but it's unrecognisable by comparison to what it was then. I mean, you, you know, if any of you were to go back in time to, like, 1985 and see what the BBC was, you would be absolutely astounded um, because it was just completely different. It had a go get approach, which said, right, we're going to nail the people doing bad stuff, we're going to throw massive resources at exposing what they're doing and we're going to try to put it right by by showing it to the world. That was the attitude. It was a real proper... Gutsy, gritty, journalistic attitude, and that's gone completely. If there's anything remotely investigative on the BBC, it's done with so many caveats and brackets, and 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 uh, uh, sort of got to show the give the other side just as much airtime as 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 we're giving to the exposure of them, um, and in the end, the is just left completely confused and doesn't know what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong anymore.
0: But why is that so particularly bad for something like climate change or, or for, you know, nature sto- stories about the natural world and the threats it
2: faces? Yeah, you know, if you rely on um, the corporations to tell you what they're doing, you're going to live in a world of lies. Um, and no one wants to um, hang their dirty washing out in public. You, you're going to only get the spin. And the spin is highly sophisticated. There's vast numbers of very clever people working on it, billions of dollars poured into um, good corporate PR, creating a, a clean face for the world to see. And while all that is happening, the same corporations are destroying our life support systems. And the only way that people are going to see what they're actually doing and see who is responsible for this great existential crisis, the greatest crisis humanity has ever faced, because we're talking about the destruction of the the, the habitable planet, um, the only way that's going to happen is through good investigative journalism. And without that, people are misinformed, misled, left in the dark. They have no idea what's really going on and who's responsible for it. And then they become highly susceptible. To the liars and the charlatans who just spin them whatever line is is um, commercially convenient, um, and you know journalism is is crucial here, but it, it's just failing almost everywhere. There's a few small bright spots, but most of what used to be called journalism has been replaced with churnalism. We're just churning out other people's press releases reproducing them verbatim almost with a little bit of top and tailing picking up agency copy dropping that into your newspaper or basing your report around it and if you listen to the today program or you watch the 10 o'clock news uh, well at the moment obviously it's all uh, dominated by the virus but at most times the great majority of it is stuff they have been fed primarily, in the case of the Today programme, by the so-called free market think tanks, which are really opaquely funded corporate lobby groups.
1: Do you think that's changing at all? Wasn't there so a, a push that, you know, that um, well? the BBC had to start saying when they were interviewing people from free market lobby groups? They had to set, uh, announce that. Do you think there's any more transparency?
2: Yeah, it did that for about a fortnight after we finally broke through. You know, there have been 15 years of banging on their door saying... God's sake, you know, you, you, you keep interviewing these people who say, oh, smoking isn't that harmful, without asking who's funding you. Oh, look, it turns out the tobacco companies are funding you. Wouldn't your audience like to know that? And, I mean, you know, I had the most extraordinary correspondence with the BBC with them saying, well, you know, if it, 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 it's, up to, it's up to the um, think tank to tell us whether they're being funded or not. Well, what if you were to ask them? They're not going to volunteer that information, are they? They're not going to say, oh, by the way, we're funded by a tobacco company while well, we're making all these statements claiming that secondhand smoke isn't dangerous, for example, or there shouldn't be plain packaging. And, um, and, and 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 the BBC was just saying, well, no, it's up to them. Mind-blowing. A complete renunciation of all journalistic values... And, unfortunately, this is completely mainstream. Anyway, yeah, for about a fortnight, they started saying, yeah, what are your interests? Because there was this sort of massive pressure on the BBC to, 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 to stop giving these people a free run. Now they've just reverted straight back to type. Yeah, Institute of Economic Affairs, Adam Smith Institute, Taxpayers' Alliance, Policy Exchange, all completely opaque. They refuse to reveal who their funders are, yet they are on the BBC and other media all the time, without being challenged.
1: So going back to the start of your career when you say that you started out optimistically and naively, as you put it, but investing so much time in telling people the truth about nature and climate and what was going to happen if action wasn't taken, how did you keep going? And yeah, how how did you stay with the struggle And how quickly did it become apparent that people weren't listening or that the story was going to be quashed?
2: Well, it certainly wasn't easy. And I would say that investigative journalism shouldn't be easy. It should always be difficult. If if you're not struggling with it, if you're not facing constant obstacles and racking your brains as to how to get past that obstacle and expose what you want to show, then you're not doing investigative journalism. If it's easy, it's not journalism. What is it? it? It's 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 just PR for somebody, you know. If they're letting you see it, if if they're handing it to you on a plate, it's their public relations. It's not your work, and it's not journalism. I mean, at the BBC, you know, I had a lot of support for the two years I was there, um, eighty-five to eighty-seven very supportive boss who said, all right, you know, I, I, I love what you want to do, because there wasn't any in- investigative environmental journalism going on at the BBC. And I really sort of hammered on their door to say, there's a gap here. I think I know how to fill it. Please let me come in and do it. And they, I was eventually given the job with the words the exact quote was, you're so fucking persistent, I've got to give it to you.
1: <laughs> it <was> basically <laughs> easier for them <laughs> easier
2: for them to give in than than to resist my my bombardment and uh, and and so i sort of spent a few weeks establishing myself sort of learning how to do it and then um um I, my boss started saying all right yeah you know, go out find some stories and um uh, you know make sure they're good ones and the first one we did was this cracking story where we found that this um, bulk carrier, this huge freighter, appeared to have been scuppered deliberately off the southwest of Ireland in order to claim insurance, and was leaking bunker oil all over the coast with devastating impacts. And I, it was it was a a, a tortuous tale, but we told it well, and and the program won a Sony Award. You know, we it just you know caused international news um and you know i thought this is this is now me doing exactly what i want to be doing uh here i am i've landed this is the thing and then we investigated the trade in chimpanzees which were being used as photographers um props and as uh, for medical research and stuff, and they were being illegally taken out of West Africa. And we had the head of customs in Abidjan offering us to, uh, offering to sell us chimpanzees, and you know, uh, you know, another great story we cracked. And I just thought, right, I, my whole life, uh, I can see it rolling out ahead of me. This is what I'm going to do. And, you know, it was hard work, you know, really hard work. first programme I made, I went into the office on Monday morning, and I left on Thursday evening, having just worked straight the way through. Yeah, I was twenty-two and I was mad, but um, it was, uh, 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 you know, a lot of work. It's much more work doing proper journalism than doing rubbish, and um, and 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 then this sort of hammer blow came uh, because of the BBC's very effective investigative journalism. Thatcher decided to shut it down. The BBC had made a couple of um, programmes which she got really, really angry about. One was called Maggie's Militant Tendency, showing how several of her front benchers were fascists in their youth. Um, and another one was called Secret Society, showing this vast spending that the government was doing on defence and spying projects that weren't approved by Parliament. And exposed all this stuff billions of pounds worth and in those days that was real money um, being being spent by the government without authorization and Thatcher went completely berserk and she forced Alastair Milne, the director General, to resign, replaced him with an accountant, um, uh, just stripped out all the um, effectiveness of the BBC and it turned almost overnight into this timmering cowering the timorous cowering little mouse where it had been this lion before and so um and and so at that point um when my boss told me no more investigative journalism i said well i can't stay at the bbc he said no you can't so um um so at that point i thought well i'm working on a really important big story about the indonesian transmigration program where the government of Indonesia, the horrible dictatorship under Suharto, um, this brutal murderous dictator, was moving hundreds of thousands of people from the inner islands of Indonesia, um, Java and Bali, out to the um, distant um, uh, borders of the archipelago, um, basically uh, to sort of create a sort of one people, one state type thing where you just stamp out all difference and all resistance, And as as he said to Indonesianize Indonesia, and this was being funded. I mean, this was a it was a brutal, in some cases genocidal, program of basically very similar to what happened in in the United States with the settlement of the frontier and the um, wiping out of the indigenous people. But it was being funded by the UK government, the US government, and the World Bank. It was quite extraordinary. And and no one had investigated it, or investigated it, or rather no one had come back, having set off to investigate it. It was phenomenally dangerous. Um, and it seemed clear to me that the epicentre of this was West Papua, which is an occupied territory, occupied in the same way as Israel occupies the Gaza Strip or China occupies Tibet, except we never hear about it. West Papua seems to be right off the radar still occupied today, being captured by Indonesia. It's the um, western half of the island of New Guinea. This place with 600 languages, incredible diversity of cultures and amazing, staggering wildlife, uh, rainforests and coral reefs and um, upland plateau flora and stuff of the kind that you just don't get anywhere else on Earth. Huge amount of endemics really rich and extraordinary ecosystems. Um, and and so I thought, you know, whatever happens, I want to investigate this story. I want to see what's happening. And, you know, they, they were moving vast numbers of colonists into West Papua, cutting down the forest, replacing them with oil palm, um, shooting anyone who, who, who tried to resist. There was mass incarceration, mass torture, mass murder going on. Um, but all we were getting was just little drip feed from missionaries and, um, and West Papuans trying desperately to communicate with the outside world. But, of course, this was way before the age of digital communication, so it was extremely difficult. It was basically letters written by scarcely literate people to West Papuan exiles living abroad. That was the only information we had. So um I thought right yeah th- th- I'm going to do this come what may so I went to a publisher and I said look I'm crazy enough to go and investigate this I want you to be crazy enough to fund me to do it and um they they fell for it <laughs> so so um <laughs> so they did they gave me a, 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 enough of an advance to to get going and then I phoned my best friend Adrian Arbib um who's a photographer but was stuck in a job he hated and um and I said, uh, uh, "Listen, Adrian, I've left the BBC. Um, uh, I've I've gone to a publisher. I'm going to go and write a book. I'm going to West Papua to investigate the transmigration program, and it's extremely dangerous." And He said, "Yes." I said, "I haven't asked you a question yet." He said, yeah. "He said I oh, know. The answer is yes." I said, well, "Look, <laughs> if we go, we might not come back." He said, "Yeah, that's fine. Just let's do it." <laughs> so, so, wow. um, so we went off for um, six months to West Papua. And had an extraordinary time. I mean, it was the, the, you were completely forbidden to, to to go there, and the only way we got in was after two weeks in Jakarta of um, of of queuing in the central police station, trying to get a permit and being rejected and rejected because, in theory, you could get a permit to go there called a surat jalan, um, uh, a, a permit to travel. We, we, we just couldn't get through the system at all. No-one no one wanted to help us. And then one day, I uh, while I'd been queuing in the police station, I went down this corridor to get a drink of water, and I saw this door, a jar, which said Head of Immigration Police on the door. And um, and I thought, I, I'm going to go in and reason with the man, you know, my sort of arrogant, entitled young man thing. I'm going to go in and talk to him, look him in the eye and persuade him to give me a surat Jalan. And so I knocked on the door, and there was no answer. I pushed the door open, and it was the, the office was empty, but on the desk was this pad of headed notepaper and a stamp. So I thought, who needs to talk to the head of immigration, please?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and and, and, and so, so that way, we got ourselves in, um, and we got into and out of a lot of trouble using that. Um, letter. Um, at one point, we actually got caught by soldiers who didn't believe it and held us for three days while they tried to get a radio link to Jakarta to check it out. And they would have shot us. I mean, there's no, no, no question that if, if that hadn't checked out, which obviously it wouldn't have, we would have died. Um, and our hair was coming out in clumps, but um, they wow. couldn't get a link. They, they couldn't make radio contact. I mean, they were in the far... Uh, um, east of West Papua, as far away, we were two and a half thousand miles from Jakarta, and they just couldn't get the ra- radio links to bounce all the way to Jakarta. And uh, so eventually, they just let us go. Um, anyway, we and uh, the only way of getting to where we wanted to go was um, to walk. So we walked across the island. Um, it took four weeks. We got completely lost in the forest. We very, very nearly died several times. Nearly died of starvation. Actually, we. Ended up eating insects and snakes and rats. Um, that, that was um, a, um, a, that was all we could find. And, you know, I lost two stone in like 10 days. You know, we were burning about 4,000 calories a day going up and down over these very steep mountains, but with just no food, completely lost in the forest. Uh, got swept away down a mountain river, got stung into a coma by hornets. Um very nearly got terminated by soldiers on a couple of occasions. Um, But eventually we got down to the main um, site where the settlers had been landed and found that they were in a terrible state, as well as the indigenous people who had been kicked off the land, that none of the promised hospitals, schools, roads, etc. had turned out, they'd just been dumped in the forest and told to get on with it. And, you know, it was just horrendous. And this was all being funded by us. And so, you know... um, after all the adventures and the discoveries, um, I wrote a book called Poisoned Arrows, and that did reasonably well. And then I was able to get an advance to do the next thing, which was to go to the Amazon and do something fairly similar. And so it was very much, you know, financially really operating on an absolute shoestring. You know, there were years where I earned £5,000, um, and but I was just you know, being really, really stingy and careful with the money. Um, and, um, you know, we we, we got there, we did it, but it was just in, incredibly difficult. You know, it was all about negotiating obstacles.
1: So did you feel that you had been pushed into writing books and were you grieving for the fact that you should have been doing investigative reports on a mainstream channel that was getting to millions of people, and that you had been pushed into this corner where you had to, still, people, lots of people bought the book. However, did you did you grieve for the loss of that um, opportunity to tell these stories?
2: Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I do enjoy writing books; it is a great medium. But I really, really missed the broadcasting, and um, and and that's what I felt I should be doing. But you just couldn't get away in at all. So, basically, for the best part of 30 years, I was just banging my head against a brick wall. You know, they would not have any environmental content. And you'd say, why? And they say, well, people don't want to watch it. And you say, well, how do you know if you're not broadcasting any? And and it was basically counter-aspirational. You know, the whole thrust of TV, again, it's hard to imagine from this distance, but it didn't used to be all about celebrities jumping up and down and screaming. It didn't used to be all about these amazing meals you can cook, but you probably never will. It, it it didn't used to be all about competitions. It didn't used to be all about the world's top ten super houses or top ten super yachts or this amazing private jet you're never going to fly. You know, we, 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 you know this whole aspirational thrust of TV is something that's happened in the past thirty years. And environmentalism is counter aspirational. It's the spectre at the feast. It's saying all this isn't progress, it looks like progress, it's the opposite. This this is, this is destroys human well-being and prosperity as well as destroying the rest of the natural world. And they did not want to hear that. And and so, you know, it's, it's a bit like saying, yeah, we tried economy, um, people don't like economy, so we're not going to do any more economic broadcasting. Oh, politics is a real turn-off, so we're not going to do any polit- political broadcasting. I mean, it's that profound. They just slammed the door on the most important subject on Earth. That's it. We're not doing it. And completely marginalised it. And so those of us who were interested in this most important subject on Earth were made to feel like the most outre and marginalised and ridiculous hippies who ever existed. Well, why the hell would you want to talk about that? And now suddenly, in the last 18 months, the BBC said, oh, this environment thing, there's some... All these young people seem to be quite interested in it. Um, oh, dear, we've sacked anyone who knew anything about it. Um, you know something about environment, George. Would you like to make a programme? <laughs> and it's like... And, and uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I welcome the shift and it has been a profound shift and it's great to see that happening and it's a very sudden shift as well, really sort of post-Greta, really, is, is, is that, that it's happened. But it's like they frittered away 30 years
1: can you and should you forgive that?
2: No, no, I can't forgive it. Um, I, I am, I'm very, very angry about it because, you know, I saw what it once was and what it could be. You know, it doesn't have to be the way it has been for these 30 years. It really doesn't. It was such a different organisation and it allowed itself to be dominated and cowed and, and disciplined by government. And the whole idea of journalism is that you don't allow the government to do that. But again mm. and again it just caved in and you had weak, feeble people just saying, oh, all right, if you say so. You know, I, I mean, after the Hutton report in the Iraq war, um, uh, you know, the, the BBC caved in. Um, it should have said, no, actually, we got this right and mm. your intelligence uh, about Saddam Hussein's w- weapons of mass destruction was wrong. Your claims were completely wrong, and we stand stand by it. And we're not going to resign, no-one's going to resign. Sack us, if you will, but we're not going to make anything easy for you. We're going to make this as hard as possible, and we're going to fight this all the way, and we're going to use our own platform to fight it. That's what they should have done. Instead, they caved, and they keep caving.
0: Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. So for a long time, you were the only ghost at this feast, and you stuck in there. But now there's a, there are many other ghosts at the feast, and things are changing, but there is still a, a crisis in our communications. What do we need to do? We have so little time. What yeah. do we need to do?
2: Well, I, I think, you know, we, we, we're we going to have to do this outside the main media organisations. I mean, it is true that the BBC and Channel 4 are finally allowing documentaries on environmental subjects to be made. Um that doesn't mean we should forget or forgive what, what they their total failure over the course of 30 years, where, you know, in Channel 4's case, they actually commissioned um, uh, the most outrageous denial programmes, um, claiming that um, environmentalists were fascists and had made it all up. It was just a big conspiracy, like the great global warming swindle and Against Nature, these appalling lying programmes. Um, They have changed and we should use them when we can. And when we can get access to them, we should use that access. But we should also recognise that the great majority of our communications are not going to be through those mainstream channels. They're going to be through podcasts like this. They're going to be through the sort of film that that, that you guys made with Greta and me uh, um, about natural climate solutions. They're, They're going to be through social media, YouTube videos... Um, uh, blog posts on Medium, on The Conversation, that sort of thing. You know, The Guardian can still play a role. Um, You know, there's some great reporting going on there. But we can't rely on just the mainstream media to do this because we've seen a long record of failure.
1: I'm just going to add in there because um, some of our listeners might not be among the 60 million plus people who've seen Tom's... Uh, short film, Nature Now, which George and Greta... Uh, we
2: should star. ban them. We should ban them from listening to this podcast. <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure, yeah, exactly.
1: You cannot continue to listen to this podcast unless <laughs> you check out the film. But so what was it about that project, for example, that you thought, yeah, this is worth me getting involved with?
2: Mm. Well, it was partly Tom's enthusiasm and persuasiveness, <laughs> which is um, <laughs> which is a very considerable asset. Um, um but it, it was you know here was this was an issue that I was passionately interested in, and Tom seemed to have a great way of bringing that to life and and yeah, that was certainly proved to be the case. Um, I think you should ask Tom why it was that that video was so amazingly successful. I mean, it, it just so so um, I mean The Guardian, among many other outlets, ran that video on its site, and it's the, I believe the most successful video The Guardian has ever run. And that was just one of, of many, many outlets. Why why is it that that one took off so well? And I don't know the magic formula, but Tom obviously does.
1: Go on, Tom.
0: Oh, I've been trying to think about this. I think it's a combination of, obviously, we had the world's attention on the issue, so that really helped to amplify the reach of it. But then lots of other films were made at the time with Greta and with other people talking about uh, environmental issues that, you know, sunk without a trace so it can't just be that I think I think part of it was that um, it was something very simple was that both you and Greta were talking directly to the audience and I think people who uh, watch films and because so many of us spend so much time watching f- films and, and sort of oh, it's a horrible phrase but consuming media people are very sophisticated and can pick up when something doesn't ring true or when they're being fed a story or when they're um, Sort of being given a sort of sanitised or, or or a PR version of something, and I think because you were just talking directly to them, as if you were talking across your kitchen table, in in your own words, and in, of, about things you both cared about, I think that really simple thing just engaged people in a way that made them think about it. And I think another thing was that it told people how to use their power as citizens. Uh, at, and as parts of organisations, and to join, and to share, and to to vote. Which you, most times, if you if you make a program that goes on television about a big scary issue like climate and how we interact with the natural world, you end up just sort of saying, "Oh, it's a bit of a shame, isn't it? That it's all so bad." But maybe buy this when you are going to buy something. You know, or or not even suggesting what people can do, and I think that combination of authenticity, directness, and giving people a, a credible thing to achieve change, I think was potent. Um, anyway, that's I don't I don't know I don't know. I
2: mean, it was also an extremely well-made film, which was just really innovative with the editing and you know, sort of sequences and stuff. Oh guys, oh guys.
1: Do you think, George, that we are now ready to press the reset button? And I think often we wait for audiences to be ready to receive this information, or at least that's one of the excuses that's been proffered by uh, people in, in power, especially in commissioning. But, like, listening to you, we have to we have to do something different as journalists to do this job properly. Are we ready to do it, do you think? Mm.
2: Well, as journalists, we're not ready. Um, but I think people are likely to be readier to listen... Um, I mean, we live in a bubble of false comfort and we have done, I mean, increasing numbers of people in the rich nations have done for the past 400 years, because basically we've been keeping ourselves prosperous and largely peaceful as a result of extracting resources from other parts of the world and now as a result of extracting resources from the future. Um, and and as a result, um, you know, to start off with, it was just a very small number of people like the plantation owners and the lords of the land who had that bubble of comfort purchased at the expense of other people but as capitalism has developed it's become more and more people uh, with more and more extraction and environmental damage being the cost of that false comfort of creating that bubble now every so often the bubble of comfort bursts and you suddenly realize oh my god we haven't completely detached ourselves from physics chemistry and biology like we thought we had we do still belong to the material world we can still be got by something in this case the coronavirus but obviously the same thing is going to happen with climate breakdown and ecological breakdown you know if if you think people fighting over toilet paper looks bad wait till they're fighting over food yeah and we now see a, a range of papers showing that with two degrees of global heating, we're highly likely to have multiple breadbasket failures, a whole load of the world's major food-producing regions being taken out all at the same time by massive heat waves. You know, as you get these amplified Rossby waves in the jet stream, that sort of thing going on, which causes simultaneous extreme weather events around the world, that is looking pretty likely with two degrees of heating. Um, the world has between ten and twelve uh, weeks' supply of food at any one time. now if if we see those simultaneous impacts happening at the same time, we could suddenly find ourselves with no f- food stores left. and And you know if, if we think things seem scary now with this virus, um, it, that is nothing to a, an actual structural lack of food. Which, which is something we face, which is one reason why I'm frantically looking for alternative ways by which we can feed ourselves without devouring the planet. Um, but it's, you know, once once a bubble has been pricked once, um, you know, obviously we'll try to get back inside a new bubble, but I think people will be more ready to believe that it can be pricked again and that we, we, we don't live on... Um, uh, in a sphere which is detached from the living world, that we are part of it and we are totally dependent on it. And when something goes wrong in it, it goes wrong in our lives as well.
1: Can I just ask, what do you think of the reporting and the media around the coronavirus? Do you think that shows that this is a watershed and that people are making those connections?
2: Well, there's been some good reporting. I mean, there's been some good science-based reporting, um, it's, uh, there's been some good reporting showing the roots of this plague in environmental destruction, you know, the, the, the Chinese wildlife trade, which has long been a horrendous blight on the living world. Um, you know, and this horrendous blight is now afflicting us. Um, but there's also been a lot of readiness just to accept the government line. So for instance, um, while we're speaking now, uh, just a couple of days ago, the, the government said, "Oh, the science has changed, so we're changing the policy." And you say, and all the journalists, just like like parrots, repeated, "The science has changed. The science has changed. The science has not changed." You know, there was a paper published in the Lancet on January the twenty-fourth. You know, that's uh, currently two months, two months ago, saying exactly what is uh, what the government now says we've just discovered. But they weren't listening to that aspect of the science because it wasn't the science they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear the science which said we can carry on as usual and build herd immunity, when experts all over the world, including the World Health Organisation, were saying that's completely crazy. And then suddenly the government says, oh, we'll change the policy because the science has changed. And, and, and I, I was disgusted by seasoned journalists who had just started repeating that line without any investigation, mm. without looking around to see whether the science had actually changed or whether this was government spin. And they repeated government spin as fact. And that is the fundamental problem with journalism right there.
0: Mm. So they're repeating, not reporting.
2: That's right. In a nutshell.
1: We speak to a lot of um, younger uh, message makers, people who want to make films. We were just down in Falmouth recently speaking to the next generation of um, natural history filmmakers. What What is your advice to people who are coming into this industry and have passion and drive to tell the truth about nature and climate? What, what? How should they conduct themselves and what traps should they avoid falling into? Because I think I fell into all of them.
2: Yeah, right. Well, look, there's no single good advice because the situation will change from month to month. You know, like the BBC flipped suddenly within the last 18 months from total hostility to, uh, to welcoming environmental coverage. There will be opportunities like that, which you've just got to dive into as, as as effectively as you possibly can. But for the rest of the time, you're just going to have to duck and weave and find, create your own opportunities, really. You know, like like Tom did with with, 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 with that small film that we made, um, because they're not going to present themselves to you on a plate. As I say, if it's easy, you're not doing it right.
1: How, accom- how accommodating could we be, or how much should we trust uh, the idea that in a system like the BBC, but in all broadcast systems and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of other media, the commissioning editor knows best, they know what the audience wants, they often tell you to take stuff out of scripts, make things less scary. How, how should we push back? Or should we believe them?
2: Yeah, no, we, sh- we really shouldn't trust them. I mean, they got it completely wrong. They called it totally wrong on environmental issues. And, you know, they had no idea why they were losing so many young people from their audience. And I think that is one of the major reasons. You know, if, you, if your audience is suddenly getting a lot older, then you're doing something profoundly wrong. And the BBC's audience has been getting a lot older because it's just not reaching younger people and and one of the reasons for that is that it is it has betrayed those young people by failing to represent life as it is by sort of presenting life as a great um celebrity fest of fame and wealth and power which you too can aspire to whereas the reality for most people's lives is about as far removed from that as it can possibly be and you know far from aspiring to the golden world of kim kardashian we're, we're going to um, we, we, we're going to end up with with a grey planet which can't support us anymore, um, and and young people could see that, and the BBC couldn't. So yeah, they definitely called it wrong. Their judgment could not be trusted. In fact, I think people go a little bit mad sometimes when they become commissioning editors, with one or two um, uh, exceptions. But you know, uh, some of them really seem to have taken leave of their senses.
0: Um, as as uh, someone who makes films for the for the BBC. Um, I, I, I feel like we talk about the BBC a lot um, and, I, and I, I've, I've sort of ranted or been grumpy uh, with feeling like I wasn't able to tell the stories you, like with the BBC that I thought people in the UK should know about. But I also, I've, over time, I've started to think that that's kind of in the way that you, one rails against a parent because what we don't talk about is uh, like how crap the alternatives to the BBC are. Like, and we talk about the BBC a lot and we hold it to such a high standard and we bash it. But, man, if we didn't have the BBC, where would we get anything? Like, and that's even more terrifying to me than, like, the failings of the BBC is the, is the potential for there not to be a BBC.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I completely agree with that. And, and, you know, I rant about the BBC because I expect better.
0: it's yes.
2: disappointed expectations. You know, I don't expect anything from Fox News. Um, and and so and there's no point in ranting about Fox News because it is just Murdoch's plaything. It's never going to improve. It's always going to be just a pack of lies. Um, whereas the BBC, we can expect better. We should expect better because technically we own it and it should mm. be reflecting public life. So, yeah, I mean, it might seem perverse that I'm more angry about the BBC than I am about Fox News, but that's only because any anger expended on Fox News is completely wasted. Um mm-hmm. so um and and yeah, yeah, you know, I find myself in this difficult position. Here's the b b c now coming under serious threat of having the um license fee removed, and um you know whatever other plans Johnson and Cummings might have for it, and I want to be able to stand up and unequivocally defend it, but throughout all these years, I've just seen failure after failure after failure, cowardice reigning, establishment cronies running crucial departments, and it not doing its job. So it makes it very hard. But it's like Noam Chomsky says, you know, you, you know, this is how they destroy public services. They defund them, they fragment them, they degrade them, they demoralise them. And in the end, you say, oh, they're not worth bothering with. They're not worth saving. And so people who would be the natural allies of those services give up on them. Now, I haven't hmm. given up on the BBC, which is why I'm still so angry about it. Um, that's, you know, that's a dangerous point is when when, when is, is when you say, right, I'm not angry anymore, because that is the point at which you think, right, I'm just going to walk away from this. But I'm angry enough to want to save the BBC, not only from the government, but also from itself.
0: So this is extremely depressing. It's no fun being the ghost at the feast and pricking people's bubble of football and things that they might like to eat and other stories that they're that they're into. By mentioning that the planetary food systems are breaking down, how do you tell these
2: stories while not turning people off? Yeah, yeah. So just on that ghost at the feast thing, I mean, for most of this thirty-five years, I've felt like Banco's ghost that even Macbeth can't see. You know, you, you're there, but no <laughs> one can see you.
1: That is marginalised.
2: Yeah, and and then at, at least now Macbeth can see can see us. You know, it, 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 there is that sort of sort of um, white cast of face as they sort of glance nervously in your direction and you think, oh, I've been seen. That's something. (laughs) That's progress. I see you. (laughs) Mm. Um, And... Yeah, you know, I've been. I mean, I've been beating myself up over the very question you've asked throughout this period. You know, there's got to be a better way of doing this. You know, what is the best way of reaching people? What is the best way of of breaking through the complacency and indifference without just turning people off? And and I, I think I, I can fairly say that over the course of those thirty five years, I have tried everything every single approach. And I know Lucy's done the same, not for quite such a long period, because you're not as far far into the second bloom of youth as I am. But, you know, and you've tried it in your ways and I've tried it in my ways, and many of us have been trying this. And there isn't a magic formula. You know, there is no one formula for breaking through. And you've got to recognise that whatever we do, we're always going to be outspent and outgunned by the fossil fuel industry, um, by the aviation industry, by the car manufacturers, by, by all the other interests which are trying to stop change from happening. They've got loads more money to spend. They've got armies of professional lobbyists. They pay the think tanks to do their PR for them and no-one knows that they're paying they um, uh, talk to government when we can't reach government. They get on the Today programme when we can't get on the Today programme. Um, they, they, we are outgunned. You know, this is an asymmetrical battle that we're fighting here. Um, and so we're never going to find the formula which changes everything because there's no such thing because we're always up against that power. And so it's it's attritional. You know, we just have to keep being inventive, keep trying new formats, new ways of telling the story. Like Tom, you did with you did with the Greta film, um, just you know, reach people by trying and trying and trying again. And sometimes it'll be a total failure and it'll just bounce off and you say, hello, is anybody out there? You know, And you just think, yeah, I've just told this amazing story and no-one no, no one cares, no-one's listening. And other times you'll say, well, I've got to write this because I'll feel I'll have betrayed my grandchildren if I don't, and at least I can say I wrote it even if no-one ever reads it, and it goes completely viral. And there's no explanation for it. It's, you know, I've never been able to work it out. And so you then think, oh, all right, I'll do that again, and you do something similar, and it's tumbleweed. So, so it's like, why do some things go viral, some things don't? It's really impossible to predict, in my experience.
0: You know, for as somebody who's cared about the natural world my whole life and spent so much of it trying to persuade people in television or in, in my personal life, you know, that this stuff is really important, and feeling that it's this greeny, irrelevant, sort of wishy-washy, unpragmatic soft-headed thing to be interested in i feel this thing of being seen that you talk about is i feel that is something that i feed off now where before it was so demoralizing to feel irrelevant on the thing that you think is the most relevant
1: well there there is also i don't want to make any light of anything that's happening at the moment of the coronavirus but there is a um a window of opportunity in that I understand that football coverage will be minimized for the next few months, so um, that has never happened certainly in my lifetime. So, um, there, there are there are kind of there is uh, an interesting shift taking place. Um, but George, thank you. I feel so much, um, I feel so much better actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't,
2: I don't normally <laughs> have that time effect to on speak people. To you.
1: <laughs> yeah, your, your uh, qualities as a, as a therapist and a, a motivational speaker are very undervalued can I just say they really are no thank mm. you thank you for being so honest as well
2: uh, I won't be giving up the day job anytime soon <laughs> but Great. thank you for saying so Lucy <laughs>
1: <laughs> no I mean it
2: <laughs> so
0: what do you make of that?
1: Do you know what I really loved about talking to George was the way that he put the investigation back into environmental reporting. For me, that was like a really important thing to be reminded about.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that many people actually even think that's their job if they're trying to like report or broadcast about nature and the climate. Like, do you go out and actually try and find these stories and question them, right?
1: Yeah, and I think that you can forget that because you think, oh, I'll just leave that to people who are doing big expeditions or who are going to West Papua or whatever. But it's a really important mindset to remember when you're covering environment stories that are under your nose that we see, that, you know, in locations that we see every day.
0: Well, I just think it's that. It's just that, like, he's so rigorous and so determined. Um, And that comes from wanting people to know what what he's seen and you can only want people to know what you've seen if you've actually seen it you that's a really different motivation from wanting to regurgitate something somebody else has told you um Mm. and i think but i think because it's so difficult to even get these stories out there that often all of our resources are taken up with persuading people to let us put a story in here to do this to cover that and to not it doesn't give us the time often to go out and do these other things or it doesn't feel like it but it is inspiring seeing someone who does it and has done it so consistently for so long.
1: I like the way he also says that if it's not difficult, then you're not doing it properly.
0: Yeah, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, that makes me a, feel better. Cause... I
0: mean, that also, it's like advice no one wants to hear, but it is good advice.
1: Yeah, right? if you've had a good I mean, time at work when you're reporting or covering a story or making a film, you haven't got the story.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's tough to hear, but our job should be tough, right?
1: Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah,
0: if you're having a tough time, you're probably doing something right. Yeah, well Well done done. you. So, on to next week. Uh, Reporting is difficult and there are gatekeepers, but it is also dangerous. A study uh, from the Committee to Protect Journalists, the CPJ, published last year found that environmental journalism is what is the most dangerous field of journalism after war reporting. On every continent, reporters have been attacked for investigating links between the destruction of nature and climate and corporate and political interests. Many have lost their lives in the pursuit of this story.
1: So next time on So Hot Right Now, we will be taking a closer look at danger.
0: My middle name, Thomas Danger Mustill.
1: Danger Mouse. Thanks
0: very much as ever to Picture Zero and Sony Fourth Floor for producing this. To our amazing producer, Natalie.
1: Amazing.
0: Amazing. Who's going to try and cut this out, but we're going to stop her. And thank you, Lucy. (laughs) That was great. Thank you, George.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Tom Danger Mustill. That's right.